You're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Kingdom Ethics is a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life, where the world's hardest problems meet faith's deepest values. This season, we'll be focusing in on the lives of 14 great moral leaders, men and women who dared to change the world. Our discussions will be guided by David and Colin's new book, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, available everywhere October 16th. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and with me is Dr. David Gushy and Colin Holtz, and today we'll be discussing the life, work, and legacy of Nelson Mandela, the first democratically elected black president for the nation of South Africa. Born into tribal royalty in 1918, Nelson Mandela's given name meant troublemaker, and he certainly lived up to that title during his life. He rose to prominence in the African National Congress and for resisting Dutch apartheid rule and racist ideology, he spent 27 years in a remote island prison. All of this led to him becoming a leader for justice, reconciliation, and peacemaking in the post-colonial world. Our hope is that you will hear today's conversation as part two of A Tale of Two Presidents, with last episode being The Life of Abraham Lincoln, and this episode being Nelson Mandela, both presidents, both leaders in dangerous and contentious circumstances but both being able to navigate those waters and finding hope, justice, and a way forward. There's so much background that Westerners don't generally have to make sense of all of that. I mean, how about if we say it this way? Well, you know, South Africa was classic and a little bit more complicated than normal situation of uh, colonialism, Western colonialism, in which partly because of the strategic location of South Africa and the, you know, the tip of Africa that the Dutch and the Brits fought over it. So a lot of the history of colonial South Africa has to do with the Dutch and the British fighting for control. But meanwhile, you have African peoples that are there, that they were there first, of course, and they had their own rich cultures and social systems. And Nelson Mandela was part of, as a child, um, the elite family of one of the tribes, the Thembu tribe, if I'm remembering correctly. And so people who knew him said, you could even see it in the video, he carried himself like a prince or like a king. He had a certain kind of a bearing about him. And this is something we see with a lot of the leaders who come out of oppressed groups you see it with Martin Luther King, for example. At home, in home, with his home culture, he came from the elite. When you come from the elite, you get treated with dignity. Mandela, Nelson Mandela, was treated with dignity. And then, in engaging the white-dominated world after leaving kind of the tribal context, the sting of indignity stings all the more. But so the experience is amplified it's by ampl- his privilege. Right. You're, you're, it's like, nobody treats me this way. I'm Nelson Mandela. And, of course, 
most white people in America, that's just kind of our default setting, right? Nobody treats me this way. I'm a white person. The intention of most of these systems is to render some people less human than others. That is how how human beings make their peace with the great suffering or oppression of other human beings around them as they tell themselves, oh, they're not really human being or not as fully human being or a lesser sort of human being. And that can actually seep into oppressed peoples and they can start thinking of themselves as subhuman. And those who come out of these more privileged environments never, never went down that path. They were told they were a somebody from the time they were three years old, four years old, as as far back as they can remember. And then they emerge in, in as an adult in this society that thinks, oh, you're nothing because you're black in South Africa, you're African in South Africa, you're black American in the United States. Mandela would go on to have a college education and become a lawyer, some some legal training, by the standards of black uh, Africans, he was incredibly well-educated in South Africa during his time period, but he was expected to bow, essentially, to a white man who didn't even have a high school diploma. In every sense, he had the experience of knowing what he was capable of and then being told he was not capable of anything. That's a that's turbocharge right there. I mean, that's jet fuel for resistance. Does this push him into his work with the ANC? No question about it. He went to Johannesburg. When he left, he actually left kind of as a rebel. His, um, I guess that would have been a stepfather, had arranged a marriage for him that he didn't want. And so he said, see ya, secretly. And he went off to Johannesburg. And he gets into Johannesburg and deals with white, you know, kind of crude white racism. And of course, at this point, we're talking about the apartheid regime under the um, the hardline Dutch Afrikaners. It was a racial state, not that different either from the Jim Crow South or from Nazi Germany. Laws based on race that slotted people in positions in society and, and their legal rights varying depending on the definitions of race that were, that were created. Um, but anyway, he goes to Johannesburg and, and he experiences this mistreatment and it was almost inevitable that he would join with the resistance that already existed, and that was mainly the African National Congress. But studying him more closely, you realize that the ANC that he encountered did not impress him very much. It was a social club. And they'd been around a while and maybe had been somewhat co-opted, and, and it was almost a kind of a, a social club and a place of some privilege. And what he wanted was a militant organization that would resist and finally win over, you know, this apartheid racism. And so he rose in the ranks. First, he was the, one of those militant young people. Kids like, these days. Kids these days, you know, um, creating or being uh, ultimately the leader of the youth wing or the youth league or whatever, you know. It's it's Youth Sunday, and you've got that you've got that <laughs> he's a gorilla. Uh, you've got that a fiery young person who doesn't understand how we do things around here. These millennials with their crazy <laughs> ideas and and he, liberty equality. <laughs> he rises in the ranks and ends up being ends up becoming the primary leader of the of the ANC. But that was a journey, though it, it 
Well, it took about 10 years. And so he gets involved in the ANC, and then I guess this, you might say his first project is to help transform the ANC into a serious resistance organization. And then uh, ends up leading the ANC in in increasingly militant forms of resistance against the South African apartheid regime. He had a rebel streak, which seems obvious as somebody who led a resistance movement, but it was there before he got into the resistance movement, right? It's what drew him there. He got tossed out of law school for a, a social activist cause well prior to getting involved with the ANC, despite having a lot of respect for those for customs and for the people who had arranged them. He came to Johannesburg essentially setting out to be a lawyer, and I don't know that he was thinking, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer in order to overturn the apartheid state, but he witnessed the apartheid state actually really come into existence. Prejudice had already been there. It had existed. Racism had existed from the earliest days of colonialism. It was codified and written into law in a, in a severe and shocking and disorienting way during his youngest years. And I think he watched that and on account of his upbringing and on account of this rebel streak, he, he said, no, I'm, I'm not okay with that. So other folks might have said, well, I'm going to figure out my place in this. And he just said no. So the same spirit that leads you to run away from the people you respect because you don't want to get locked into a marriage is the same spirit that says, ah, I'm going to sign up and I'm going to run a bus boycott or a, a petition campaign and find meaning in it and say, no, this is the cause of my life. Did he succeed in producing, in the use of violence to influence any sort of change in the country? We were saying he's seeking more aggressive, more militaristic means. Does it get past boycotts. And... Yeah. A lot of people don't know this about Mandela, but he was not a principled advocate of nonviolence in the way that Martin Luther King was. His cause was liberation and justice for black South Africans, and ultimately that could be framed as a just multiracial democracy, a real democracy where everybody has equal rights and equal voice. In the late 50s, early 60s, as the apartheid regime tightened the screws and, and continued to make even nonviolent protest more and more difficult with lots of suppression, he concluded that, that you know, if the state would not allow uh, or would not respond to nonviolent protest, that they needed to move to violent protest. So he ended up becoming, for a brief time, the leader of a new militant guerrilla wing. And this is like Mandela as Che Guevara, you know, Man Mandela with the beret and the, and the machine gun. Mandela as George Washington. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The uh, revolutionary leader. He went outside of South Africa to get some military training and consorted with, you know, the more militant revolutionary wing of the kind of the African anti-colonial movements all over Africa. But pretty much by the time he came back into the country, the intelligence services, the security services of the South African regime knew exactly what he had been doing and saw him as one of their top enemies. And so uh, he was arrested. Uh, I guess this would have been about 1962 and um, put on trial for his life for um, you know, basically for, for treason armed resistance. And there were, uh, like some other moral leaders we have in the book, trials and, you know, being the enemy of the state was kind of the pivotal experience in in their lives. And this was true of Mandela, too. Speeches that he gave in, in his own defense at trials, including the Ravonia trial, uh, are, are some of the most memorable things he ever said. Rather than 
kind of evading or dissembling or trying to, you know, find ways to avoid being nailed for the charges, he decided to lean right into them and say, I am prepared to give up my life for the freedom of my people. And so he could have been executed. Instead, he was sent off to jail and what ultimately became a 27-year imprisonment. It was in jail that he evolved in ways that we think of as the later Nelson Mandela, the the Morgan Freeman Nelson Mandela, you know, kind of um, more gentle, more nonviolent, more of a reconciler and a peacemaker. Prison had an interesting effect on him, and it's interesting to and we talk about it, why that was. He was prepared to die and to kill, though there's no evidence that he ever, ever killed anybody. He was always militant, but yeah. militant doesn't mean using violence. Militant yeah. can be in opposition to another set of individuals, either within your own community or in another group, who are saying, be calm, have patience, work within the system. In those terms, Martin Luther King was militant Mm -hmm. in that way. He refused to accept the status quo and refused to accept that status quo would eventually change. He wanted to pressure it and push on it until it creaked and cracked and shattered into a thousand pieces. That's Mandela from the beginning. Later on, when the Afrikaner state essentially made it clear that there is no amount of social pressure that could shame us, we will respond violently, did Mandela essentially from a a standpoint and an ethic of self-defense say, well, if violence is going to come, let's direct violence at symbols and not at people. If violence is going to come, we're responding to it. We're not instigating it. And I think that's that's a different style of, of leadership. It's a different idea of how social change comes about. It's really hard to talk about systems sometimes because we're used to interacting with people. Very rarely can we say, ah, oh, yes, I met a system the other day. Six foot four. Yeah, Yeah, uh systems are, they're conceptual devices, they're shorthand for just structures of relationship, of community. But something that connects a lot of our moral leaders in this book is that they were able to distinguish between evil systems and evil people. And thus their anger and that righteous outrage became directed at the system instead of the people in it. They started seeing, in many ways, the people, even oppressive people in the system as victims in their own way of that system. And that is one of the big changes that occurred in Mandela's life, especially while he is in prison, is he became less angry at white people and more angry at a system that made white people evil, oppressive, violent towards black Africans. Both victimized in different ways. Forced into roles of oppressed oppressors. And this this is a theme that comes up a lot in um, Frederick Douglass talking about what slavery did to slave owners and not just to the enslaved. Martin Luther King talking about, hey, I'm really fighting for white people as much as black people because this is not good for you. I mean, this is this kind of unjust power and this hatred that is boiling in you that you've been trained in. It's bad for you. A truly liberative movement in that sense is not about destroying those those others. It's about converting them. So this passion eventually gets him incarcerated, and there's this global free Mandela outcry. How do we get to that? Why does the world know about Mandela when he goes to prison? How does this story spread? So there are two trials. There's the Ravonia trial and then the later treason trial. 
The Ravonia trial, he gives the no easy walk to freedom speech. Little known fact, he doesn't actually give it. He writes it. Somebody else has to read it because he's under a government ban at the time. and He is not allowed to travel to give that speech. It's during that trial that he first sort of emerges onto the world stage. And then the treason trial was notable because he could have been executed. Most of the people in attendance were rather shocked when the conviction came down and it was life in prison rather than the death sentence. And again, in that trial, he gave speeches saying, here's what I did, here's why I did it, here is the history that you are complicit in, here's the moral outrage that you are enacting, and... I think he sort of realized he cast most of his actions in the context of global uprisings against colonial rule. And because of that global outlook in the the new globalized communications age, I think he realized that he wasn't only speaking to the people in the room. He was speaking to a world constituency. And so then he goes to jail. You know, as his imprisonment went on, even into the late 70s and early 80s, it began to feel more and more like an anachronism, right? I mean, colonial regimes had been set aside or overcome or whatever all over the global south. South Africa was a laggard. And by the late 70s and 80s, you have early CNN. I mean, you have the ability to to project a message worldwide even more. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember um, the global campaign to label South Africa like a pariah state to boycott everything about South Africa, to block them from participating in any way in, like, international sport or or anything else. It was an early example of the power of boycott strategies globally. And South Africans were shamed on the global stage on a regular basis. And so as Mandela's imprisonment went on, most of it at Robben Island, um, South Africa needed a way to get him out of prison eventually because it was, and, and to end this because it was, I mean, they were like the worst nation in the world was how people thought about them for they the longest the time. They are the bad guys in, in, I think it's Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> Is that right? So South watch, Africa? So, <laughs> serious. So you watch Lethal Weapon 2 today and you're like, why are the South Africans the bad guys, the like scum of villainy in the universe? <laughs> if you have not read our book you might not know if you have read it you would you so so yeah if you read moral leadership for a divided age you will better understand lethal weapon too well that's that's where we end it by the book (laughs) Um, how do you get from the the villains in lethal weapon 2 to a country who supreme court justice ginsburg says has the best constitution on the planet well what happens is by the early 80s the white South African government realizes that the clock is ticking and they need to at least begin having conversations with Mandela and negotiating a way out of this. So they start having these private conversations with Mandela and these accelerate as the 80s continue, as the boycotts continue, as the impossibility of minority rule. We're talking about 15% of the people ruling 85% of the people on, on the basis of race. No way, it ain't going to work. And so in these secret negotiations, South African leaders, the white South African leaders and Mandela begin to negotiate a movement towards a constitutional convention, essentially, to create a new South Africa. Finally, it happens. It's called CODESA. I forget what that all stands for now. The book would have it. 
And so they go into a laborious negotiating process that finally leads to the release of Mandela from prison, the the uh, abandonment of the apartheid regime, the birth of a, a new, very rich kind of constitutional order that emphasizes uh, equality and democracy. And it's kind of ahead of its time in some ways. So Mandela's role in those last years, the late 80s, is to help the white regime save face in a sense, to not have to be overthrown by force or beat a humiliating retreat, to negotiate a transition to majority rule with a free and fair election and a constitution where everybody's rights are protected. And then once he's released from prison and all the people who've been waiting for him to come out of prison are listening to his every word, including people who've been oppressed for decades and decades, centuries really, and to say, we will not hate them. We will build a new South Africa together. And and to actually lead as the first president of the new multiracial modern South Africa and to lead in a bloodless constitutional revolution. It's an extraordinary achievement. Something about Mandela's status, his charisma, his protected prisoner of conscious identity allowed him to be a go-between and a negotiator in a way that risked honestly angering many people on his own side, many people who he agreed with. And that's the delicate balance that I think every one of these moral leaders has to face is how how willing are you to upset your friends? It's pretty easy to upset your enemies. Most of these moral leaders didn't become moral leaders simply because their opponents were angry at them. It's because at the right junctures, when it mattered for a, a higher cause, they were willing to anger their friends. Mandela had such stature, and unlike a lot of our moral leaders, he was able to make that transition successfully to lead South Africa as its first president. He was old by then. He was 80, I think. Um, and then to retire to private life at last after a very hard life, a very difficult, I mean, 27 years in prison, his family life shredded more than once, and to die as the beloved George Washington of his, of his people. Yeah. When I think of Mandela, I think of when he was released from prison. You still can see the footage of the day he is released from prison. He walks out of the prison, and uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people are waiting for him black South Africans mainly, to give a speech. And their joy at him as their, their symbolic representative, out of jail and the birth of freedom that is coming, but, but also them hanging on his every word. And I've often thought if he had just said, if he had been the kind of person who would have considered saying, brothers, sisters, it is now time for us to get our revenge. A call to arms in that moment could have been devastatingly successful. Similar to Gandhi in that way, there's this moment where what they, what somebody chooses not to do is as much what makes them a moral leader as what they choose to do. It's the path they choose not to take. I mean, this is a guy who, who lost two marriages to apartheid, basically. He lost 27 years of his life. His son died and he couldn't couldn't go to the funeral, and he just did not go down in that path of vengeance. He said, we must build South Africa together. I think it's beautiful. It's a similar critique that's made of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was 
which Mandela could have put a stop to. He absolutely could have just said, no, we're not doing this. He had that authority at that point. No one at that point thought there was anything going to happen except violent reprisals, revenge, seeking out the person who did the torturing and torturing them. That whole process was a lightning bolt of moral decency at a time when everyone expected a country in flames. I'd like to say something about his religiosity. He was raised as a Christian, um, and he did receive, uh, you know, Bible education in school. But when you actually, like, read his, uh, like, long walk to freedom and and his speeches, he doesn't do a lot of explicit religious talk. It's interesting. He's less of a public theologian than Lincoln is. He doesn't theologize. He just speaks about basic principles of justice and dignity and says we must have justice and dignity for all South Africans. And yet, ironically, it's quite possible he was a more doctrinaire and devout Christian than Lincoln was, at least in his private faith. Yeah. We're not quite, we can't be sure. He just didn't, he didn't play religious language out in the way that one might have thought, especially with a country with as much Christianity in the background. I do recall from reading Long Walk to Freedom that he certainly had a full awareness of the horrendousness of the apartheid theology that in other words, there were theologies that attempted to support apartheid based on theologies of race, um, Curse of Ham, all of that stuff. We're going to talk about it with Bonhoeffer and the Nazi state. We, we yeah. talk about it in America with the slave state and with the Jim Crow state. And we see it again in the apartheid state. And we can't emphasize enough that in most of these cases... It is not that the Christians are the heroes of the story and you have these secular fascists coming in and destroying respect for humanity. Every single one of these instances is a a fight between the worst and best instincts of of religion in general and and Christianity in particular in these examples. So, yeah, we, we try in this book to honor the power of religion, including Christianity, to motivate people to do the right thing, while not telling a story of triumphal Christianity that always gets it right, because that's definitely not the story that we want to tell. It's not It's not an accurate story, though it's certainly how a lot of times Christians like to think of themselves. We are not always agents of light. So anyway, I just think it's interesting that Mandela could have used a lot more Christian language. He just didn't. Uh, he spoke a broader language for maybe for a broader a broader purpose, but it's an unassailable language. Every human being and every group of human beings has certain basic rights, and what you're doing to us, 1955 South Africa, is obviously unjust, and we will fight it until it stops. All right, David, would you like to give us our leadership lessons from the book? Forgive failures, but do not forget them. There was no sugarcoating what had happened in the past, but Mandela wanted uh, black South Africans to move on. Avoid talking down to people. Yes, uh, in discussions with the white South African leaders or whoever he was dealing with, he refused to talk down to people or to condescend to people. He, he, He tried to raise them up as opposed to talking down. Make the most of setbacks. I mean, 27 years in prison did not break him. It actually made him a better man and a better leader. That's, that's incredible. Be willing to see the humanity in people. It's, it's the system more than the people, the individuals. So deal with the system. And then be disciplined. By the way, that being disciplined, 
Uh, it's amazing how many of the moral leaders that we have in the book are just incredibly disciplined people, disciplined in their thinking and their study, disciplined uh, in their relationships, in their faith practice, even in athletically. Uh, Mandela was a boxer. He was a, a rangy athletic person who got up at five in the morning or whatever, even in prison, to do this incredibly intensive exercise regimen just because uh, that's just what he needed to do to stay fit. Uh, I'm, I try here at the, at the age of, let's say, well under 80 to, to, to try to be as, as disciplined athletically yeah, as Nelson. Hour of that's, that's, the, that's the bucket you're in now? Um, well under 80. And that's like, the closest you people are going to get. You have U16 teams, U18, now we have U80s. <laughs> that's right. And Mandela is like, he's setting my exercise program. If I can be as, if I can do his exercise program in my well under 80 group, I will feel proud. Prior to your day of manual labor in the mines. That's right. He He did this. Because he could do it. In other words, the prison guards were going to tell him later in the day what he would have to do. He did this on his own agenda, his own time. I love that defiance about him, that tenacity, that commitment to being his own person. Very impressive. Uh, to me, Mandela is one of my favorite leaders. It's striking that during the heyday, of, I mean, during his working career, a lot of American Christians were suspicious of him as some kind of like militant communist or something. But now I think we see that he was somebody who deserves the memory of one of the most significant leaders of the 20th century. There's a whole lot to mine here. We haven't talked about about his connections, maybe even flirtations with communism. I think the best quote is he, he responds to complaints that the communists were using the black African resistance, and he responds, well, what is to say that we were not using them? And I think that's probably a fairly accurate reflection. He wanted freedom for his people, and there were some folks who were willing to help, maybe because their interests aligned, and so he was willing to play along. But it does go to show that for those listening today who maybe didn't live through this era, it's a reminder that had had we been alive in that Cold War era, we would have looked at a great moral leader and written him off as a dastardly evil figure who was part of an international conspiracy. By the way, for the Christians listening, how about this as a closing warning? Um, the communists who were the godless atheists who Christians love to attack Mandela said that the communists, who were largely white, were the only ones who consistently offered support for the black liberation movement, for example, in the 50s. The Christians, all those nice Christians, were either sitting on their hands or had bought this kind of racist apartheid theology. Yeah, that's a really hard reality. So, two cheers for the communists. For, for thinking in a way that, um, that led them to solidarity and bad on us Christians who had, had gotten trapped in apartheid theology, racist theology that had us opposing the just aspirations of an oppressed people. All right, Colin, it's been a really great conversation, but of course we can't cover a whole life in 30 minutes. So what about the life and legacy and work of Nelson Mandela do we still need to talk about? We've touched on it, but we haven't dug into it, and that's Mandela's family life. 
and the destruction wrought by his career and vocation on his family life. Almost every moral leader in this book struggles to balance this cause that consumes them with, with taking care of their family, with having strong relationships with either a spouse or with children or with parents. I don't think any leader is as frank and open about the trade-off as Mandela is. Mandela essentially says that I could not be there for my family in the way I wanted to be. I could not be both father to my children and father to a nation. He has shared the stories of his children saying, you got out of prison, we thought we'd have you back, and instead the nation pulled you back in to a different cause. And I think there's something beautiful about his honesty, even as, as sad and bittersweet as what he's being honest about. And it's wonderful and beautiful that he lived long enough that his third marriage seems to have been very steady, very unexciting, perhaps in the best of ways. There was not the drama that you saw in earlier marriages, and he managed to finally achieve some, some level of peace. David, Colin, thank you. This has been a great conversation. I can't wait to share it. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. If you would like more information about the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, please visit us online at ctpl.mercer.edu. If you'd like to know more about the work and ministries of the voices you heard today, you can find us at our respective websites, revjeremyhall.com, davidpgushy.com, and colindholtz.com. If you'd like more information on great moral leaders, pre-order David and Colin's book, available October 16th of 2018, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, 14 People Who Dared to Change the World. Thank you. We'll see you next time. You already got enough people out for you. Why are you re- why are you saying oh, no, that the stuff mic's on a on. mic? <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> All right. If you had half an idea. <laughs> <laughs>